Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, this is Mike with a quick heads up that today marks the end of our giveaway for the art and making of The Expanse from Titan Books. We want to say thank you to the many people, both established listeners and new followers, who entered the contest. And we want to let you know that winners will be announced on next week's podcast, which, not coincidentally, is also our interview that revisits with The Expanse showrunner Naren Shankar and female lead actor Dominique Tipper. Now, once notified, winners will have 48 hours to claim their prize by responding to the announcement that they won by messaging their address before we have to choose new winners. So thanks once again, and now, here's this week's podcast. You've tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, episode 80, For All Mankind. All right, welcome back to the podcast, everybody. It's Mike and Dave with you once again with another show topic. This one's taking us to a streaming service that I'm not sure how many of our audience members have subscribed to at this point, but it's definitely a show that's been getting a lot of buzz on Apple TV+. Plus. For All Mankind is an alt history in the vein of Man in the High Castle, you might say, but also kind of a workplace drama wrapped up in a sci-fi concept. Yeah, and you, I think last week w- when I accused you of spoiling the premise, which is, of course, <laughs> that the Russians got to the moon first, uh, uh, I think you're right. I think that's one of the worst kept secrets along with the fact that the U.S. Well, it's the lost- log line. It's the log line for the show. <laughs> okay, you know, like uh, Man in the High Castle, everybody knows going in the U.S. lost the Second World War. But, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, it really is a series that has exceeded – my expectations, because even though Ronald D. Moore created and wrote it along with uh, Matt Wolpert and Ben Nadivi, uh, I, I was still a little concerned that it was just going to be a drama with the space program in the background. And while that's certainly true to a large extent, there are so many other aspects to it. So a little more of the background, you know, you you filled in some of the gaps already, Michael. It premiered on November 1st, 2019, and it's a 10-episode season. The first three are dropped together, and then we get a new release each week. And I know you and I, as podcasters, love this kind of a format. Yeah, it can be a bit tiring. We've, We've got a ton of Netflix shows that we've talked about on this podcast and it's a challenge to do those kinds of shows. And I think it'd be interesting to see if anyone does an episodic discussion out there on Apple podcasts for, for all mankind or any of the shows like the Mandalorian or C any of these new shows that just came out this month on the new services. Right. And how many times have we broken our two episode rule with a Netflix series? Right. That's definitely true. 
like a, a Russian doll, for example. <laughs> right, right. So we're going to talk about the first two episodes here. By the time the podcast drops, I believe three, four, and five will have been released. So we'll, we'll talk about what goes on in those three episodes a little bit in the spoiler zone. But episode one, titled Red Moon, because, of course, the Soviets land there first. And, and the opening scene right away, 500 million around the world are watching the first moon landing. And we cut back and forth between a NASA mission control. And there's this stunned silence when the first man lands on the moon. And, and of course, we knew that going in. But I think there's still that hope that, well, maybe something different's going to happen. Maybe it's not <laughs> yeah. exactly what we thought. But of course, we all know the first words from Neil Armstrong. Instead, we get the Russian cosmonaut I take this step for my country, for my people, and for the Marxist-Leninist way of life, knowing that today is one small step on a journey that will someday take us all to the stars. And while that's extremely verbose, th <laughs> there are a couple of key phrases, of course, the one small step that we're probably thinking, they stole that from Neil Armstrong. <laughs> but the last part that will someday take us all to the stars and, you know, you and I talked about the Nat Geo series, Mars. And of course, the idea is that colonizing Mars is just one step of going farther out into the solar system. Right. And what's going to make these nations do that and invest it in it the way they did to get to the moon? The only thing that got us there under Kennedy's administration in our version of history is the fact that they had to compete with the Soviets because they had gotten first to space. So if they had to continue competing with the Soviet Union, would they take it farther and farther and even beyond the moon to Mars? And I, I do kind of wonder, when are we going to get to that point in the series since it's already been renewed for season two? Maybe we'll be in Mars at some point. <laughs> yeah, and we've talked many times, Netflix is reticent to release any numbers. So we don't know what Apple's going to do about letting the general public know how well these series are performing for them. Right, or how well the service in general is performing. <laughs> good point, good point. But uh, let's talk a little bit about Eddie Baldwin, played by Joel Kinnaman, and obviously Joel Kinnaman has a special place in our hearts because we did a podcast way back about The Killing. Yeah, and then he took on Altered Carbon, which I reviewed for Den of Geek, and that was really hardcore, one of the few cyberpunk shows out there on TV. So, yeah, he's really making a name for himself. Right. So we learn early on through various implications that he had a chance as part of Apollo 10 to walk on the moon. But since the mission didn't call for him to do that, it opened the door for the Soviets. And uh, of course, we're thinking, well, if he had the chance, why didn't he do it? And, and of course, as we learn, that wasn't part of the mission, that the Americans at this point are very methodical, that this mission is to learn, I think it was to find a, a suitable landing spot for Apollo 11. And that's, of course, what Apollo 10 did in our real version of history. I think it's interesting that they use facts from our, our own history and include characters like Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin in the cast of characters, but then they make up 
these fictional people like Eddie Baldwin, who didn't actually participate in Apollo 10. That was some other folks. But the Apollo 10 mission is described exactly as it happened. Right. And much of the show does follow that scenario where it follows history point by point, And then suddenly we're thrust uh, a character that is completely fictional. But I love the character of Eddie because he, in, in so many ways, is, is the quintessential anti-hero. I mean, he's at the bar that all of the astronauts frequent. And there's a reporter that's unsuccessfully trying to get one of the U.S. astronauts to comment on the Russians landing there. And Eddie does the unthinkable. And whether it's because he's drunk or fed up or whatever, criticizes NASA's approach, sees Apollo 10 as a wasted opportunity and keeps going that we used to be on the cutting edge. We were willing to take risks, but after the Apollo one accident, which of course really happened when, when the three astronauts died in that tragic fire. And that's why we lost the moon, which of course makes for a great headline for the newspaper. Yeah. Not so much for Eddie's career at NASA. No, he gets put on desk duty at that point. And he already was kind of chomping at the bit because he knew he was set to be on Apollo 15. But even that is taken away from him, even though who knows how far off in the future that is. Right. And we see Werner von Braun as the head of the space program, of course, a historical figure. And he obviously wants Eddie removed not only from the Apollo program, but from the agency completely. But I, I guess he's got some people watching out for him, and he's demoted, as you say, to essentially a desk job. And I love that scene with his wife, Karen, because she understands what he did. And just like really the military wife that she is, because most of these guys were, were naval pilots or, or Air Force pilots. He broke the honor code. He should have known better. And she's angry because it's going to impact her and their family as well. And how he didn't see that is, is just beyond her. And uh, yeah, I think the person looking out for him that you mentioned is Deke, the character of Deke, which is this character that's fictional, played by Chris Bauer, a great character actor. And he's the one that actually keeps Eddie around. And yeah. he continues to do that, stick up for his guys throughout the series. Right. Now, one of the areas that the series focuses on is the role of women. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in the spoiler zone. But Margot Madison, played by Ren Schmidt, who is an actress that I know from Outcast, but we see her immediately as the lone woman scientist in a sea of men. And again, that's not a surprise. She's so dedicated. One of the first scenes we see her in, she's sleeping in her office. She's got all sorts of little uh, workarounds, whether it's uh, for her hair, for her deodorant, whatever, where her clothes, where she sleeps. <laughs> but we learned that her father has a certain level of importance and he and Von Braun had a relationship. So of course, one of the first questions we're asking, did she get this position because of her father's friendship with Von Braun? And while the answer maybe is yes, we don't really get an answer. Clearly 
she deserves to be there because clearly she is head and shoulders above most of the people she works with. Yeah, I love that scene that, that we get introduced to that I'm sure you're about to talk about where she figures out an alarm code before the guy who's in charge of the mission does. I love that. Right. And nobody will listen to her because she's that woman. Right. <laughs> and, and she steps out of her zone and it's almost like she broke protocol. And in fact, she is dressed down for doing that, which it seems to run counter to what these astronauts are expected to be able to do, which is jury rig something on the fly, which is, of course, we see on the, the one later moon landing in the spoiler zone. And <laughs> in fact, that's a great scene when Von Braun confronts her about being intimidated. And we see that they have a relationship, which probably is born out of his relationship with her father. But it's clear he sees her as a protege of sorts. Yeah. And I like that as it evolves throughout the series and definitely later on in the season, that relationship is challenged. And I think that is a great little subplot that goes along. And that, that's what's great is that the relationships are really emphasized in this show. It's not just about the sci-fi elements or even the moon aspect of the competition between the Soviets and the United States. It's also just about what are the backstories of these characters? And they spend quite a bit of time on some of these subplots. So it really enriches the story overall. Right. And that's not a surprise for anybody that's followed Ronald D. Moore and Battlestar Galactica, for instance. Yeah, definitely. It's got that flavor. Right. So I think for most of us, we associate the U.S. space program with John F. Kennedy, as you alluded to a few minutes ago. Here, it's July 1969. Richard Nixon is in office and certainly not out of character for what we have read about Nixon in real life, but he is pissed because he thinks he'll be blamed for the space program's failure. Right. And I love that they get all of his impressions of what's going on by way uh, they deliver it through a narrative device of audio tapes in the same way that the Watergate tapes might have been <laughs> discovered. So it's like reminiscent of that, but completely separate from that. And we get a little peek behind the scenes that way. Right. And there's very little I did not like in this series. And the scene where Deke calls everybody together and basically reads them the riot act. Okay. This is pretty important stuff. I'm not sure going out and getting drunk is the right approach. I get what he's saying. You know, we're going to be working <laughs> our butts off for however long so go blow off some steam i wasn't crazy about that but what made up for it was when one by one every astronaut went out of the building and hopped into a corvette yeah you gotta have it if it's a show like this exploring the moon program as it initially happened you gotta have the cars <laughs> right and i'm guessing that's probably true to life that they probably did drive fast oh, yeah. cars and we see them driving totally recklessly down the highway on the way to the bar now obviously nixon wants a man on the moon asap and what that's going to force the space program to do is to come out of their game plan which is to be methodical to go one step at a time and not put the astronauts at undue risk 
But to do what Nixon wants them to do, they're going to have to take more chances, which leads into, and it's sort of apropos with what's going on in real life at the moment, Congress wants to launch a series of investigations to see why we lost. Yeah. And this is where it gets interesting, too, with the alternate history, because you think, okay, they're going to start with the premise of the Soviets getting to the moon first, and then the drama is going to ensue and we're not going to do anything else. But just little details that they drop into the background, like you mentioned the investigations that Congress is about to launch. Ted Kennedy comes home early from Chappaquiddick to participate in this investigation. Therefore, he doesn't get embroiled in the controversy that <laughs> that surrounded him that maybe prevented him from running for office later on. So you can see the the pieces are going to start falling into place where a butterfly effect is going to happen here. A lot of things are going to change because of what happened with the moon, not just the space program. Well, hopefully Robert Redford won't become president. (laughs) Now, Apollo 11 is the next mission. We're going to put a man on the moon, two weeks to launch, and the stakes could not be larger. Succeed and the program goes on, fail, and it's likely that the space program will be defunded. And we get the group scenes, the astronauts are in the bar watching the landing, the wives and kids are at one of the homes of the astronauts. And again, I really love that camaraderie that the wives have. And, you know, we get some later scenes, particularly in episodes three, four, and five, as newcomers are added to that group. And in some cases, a a bit reluctantly for, for various reasons. But Deke's wife tells Karen that Von Braun might take Eddie back if he publicly states he was misquoted and denies that he said what was printed. And and that line about duty, honor, and country, and Deke's wife tells Karen, sometimes you have to pick two. Right, but no way Eddie's going to do it. <laughs> so, and again, that, that was realistic. Everybody was glued to their TV for the moon landing in 1969, and we see the lander making its descent. It can't find a safe spot to land, and telemetry comms are lost, and, and for the longest time, we don't know whether they crashed. And if this was a series 10 years ago, we'd say, ah, we know they didn't crash but we're not so sure anymore. No, it's true. Mostly because they draw it out and give us like a span of time where contact is lost. So you really start to doubt it. And I don't know about you, Dave, but while I was watching that landing, I was tense, even though I know, oh, it's Neil Armstrong. He'll be fine. No, we didn't have any guarantees. And it was felt throughout that scene. Right. And we're told that the lunar lander is not very sturdy. So, you know, the slightest misstep could just, have it fold up like a tin foil, uh, a tin foil. Right. But we're not sure. Well, especially since they start concentrating on the fact that the man left in the module that they go back home in is deciding he's just going to stay there. There's no way he's going to leave them and return home by himself. Right. And the conventional wisdom at this point on NASA's end, is it the lander crashed? The men are dead. Deke's wife sends the other wives off to their new assignments for comfort, information, whatever. Nixon is practicing the pre-prepared speech in case of failure. Of course, as you said, Collins tells Mission Control he's not coming back, and then suddenly Eagle makes contact. 
and we expected that ultimate disaster after the interminable wait. And then the reality kicks in. All right, now we got to get them home. Yeah, but what a great, that was the first episode, right? Yes. So as pilots go, knocked it out of the park, especially with that ending. <laughs> yes. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Right now, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail here. I've made myself clear in, in many cases. I'm not huge on social commentary in my entertainment. I understand it's going to be there. And there's a fair amount in For All Mankind, but it, it stays in the background. And the, this Mexican story, if you will, which carries through the first few episodes, if you want to view it as social commentary, I can certainly understand that. But we see this young woman, Alita, at the grave of her mother. Uh, of course, at the beginning, we don't know it's her mother, but it's July 20th, 1969, and we see this group of people at the U.S.-Mexico border, and they're sneaking into the U.S., and it seems as if they picked the perfect time, probably deliberately, because they knew the rest of the world is watching the Apollo 11 moon landing. And, of course, these Mexicans are making a landing of their own, and, and it's a great visual scene as they're crossing the border, that full moon in the background it, it just visually is stunning yeah now it's interesting that you said that you know this being social commentary i think alita's story might eventually become social commentary but i didn't see this as social commentary at all i think they were just laying the groundwork for a character that we knew was going to become important and i think many of us probably thought up oh, here we go this is going to be a future astronaut down the road uh, once they get to the future part of this several years pass and it does seem to be on that track, but I never really took it as anything commentary wise. The fact that she was from Mexico. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's just me. <laughs> well, I guess I just, you know, clearly crossing the border illegally yet at the same time, this is clearly a young woman that is going to grow up to be somebody important. And while I don't think she's going to be an astronaut, I do think she's going to be literally a rocket scientist. Okay. I like that idea too. <laughs> and, and, and I love how they lay the groundwork because her dad works as a custodian at NASA and what a wonderful father he is. Uh, just so many scenes, what he does for his daughter and, and just the, the relationship they have. I, I just really love that aspect, but her fascination with fire yeah. and how she's constantly setting things on fire which and it's really dangerous and you wonder whether it's partly linked to a depression over her mom's death which has clearly affected her 
or whether it's just something that's in her, this level of curiosity, because we see that scene where she starts a fire with a magnifying glass. Yeah, it just kind of makes her realize that she can channel this into something because she's kind of scared by it when she tells her father, I want to be inside the fire. And you think, oh, is she a pyromaniac? No, no, it's just part of her drive. She doesn't know what to do with it. And when he says, maybe one day you'll build a fire inside one of these, that obviously is something that maybe will plant a seed in her mind for when she is immersed in the, um, the surrounding, her, you know, her father's work surroundings might rub off on her. Right. And that's what I love about this beautiful relationship, because on the one hand, you think he should be irate that his daughter yeah, could yeah. have burned the house down. But instead, he sees something beyond that. He, he sees that spark of imagination and, and he knows his daughter's something special. And as you said, maybe one day you'll build a fire inside one of these, which, of course, I think is going to be a rocket. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, now episode two titled He Built the Saturn V focuses a lot on Werner von Braun. Certainly, the aspect that we see come to the forefront in episode two is that the space race has now evolved into a mission to put a military base on the moon so that it's not enough to land a man on the moon. We've got to be the first to put a military base on the moon. We learn that the U.S. has procured Soviet blueprints for a base, so we understand why the urgency is there. But von Braun comes across as the pure scientist, that he doesn't want anything to do with a military base. And you can understand that. I mean, the guy worked for Adolf Hitler. Yeah, and the whole Manhattan Project is looming in the background, too, I'm sure where you don't want the technology that you think can be for the betterment of mankind being used as a weapon. Right. And, and he phrases it that he doesn't want space to become a battlefield. And of course, when Nixon hears that, he wants Von Braun gone. So, you know, we talk about the space race. And I think what we see in this series is it literally is a race in that their rockets in the air. Well, we got to get ours. Can we catch it? Not literally, but I think it just feels like so much more of a race than it did living at real time, yeah. which <laughs> yeah, I did. You didn't No. <laughs> I tell you one problem I do have with the series is what happens with the next part of the Soviets getting to the moon, because I think there's a certain amount of one upmanship that needs to happen. And of course they're setting up plot lines for later storylines that are not related to the space program, but do you think it's viable that, or that it's believable that the Soviets would pull a stunt like putting a woman on the moon? It just doesn't seem in character for them. <laughs> well, you know, I, I've thought about that during the past week or so preparing for this podcast. And I think I felt like you at the beginning, but it seems to me what I have learned about the Soviet system is that they put more value on women in that time period than I think we did in the United States, that I think there were more opportunities for women. So was it a stunt? Yeah, maybe. I, I think we'd certainly have to acknowledge it at one level as a stunt. But on the other hand, I think it sends a message that we're not only ahead of you in the space race, you know, we're ahead of you in the social race as well. But man, what an effect it has. Yes. 
on society at large that really sets has history on a completely new path again unrelated to the space program and i love that about this show is that this butterfly effect really starts to set in to motion some subplots that are more about alt history because people who watch the man in the high castle sure they watch it for the alternate history but they also want to watch it for the sci-fi elements of the parallel worlds we don't have that in this series so we're going to have to get the sci-fi piece from something else and we get that from the spreading effects of that initial speculative change in our history. Right. And you mentioned the connecting stories. We see the cosmonaut lift up her face shield and we realize that it's a woman. Well, we've got the story about Margot trying to break through the boys club barrier, Alita. We just talked about her. And then of course the NASA wives that we'll talk a little bit more in a few moments, but Eddie Congress, the lost race, and and of course, everybody at NASA is still angry with Baldwin, and it appears that as long as Von Braun is the director, Eddie's going to be tied to a desk, but he starts looking into, and I, and I really like this about his character, that as disappointed as he is, even crushed, he starts inquiring about returning to the Navy, where at least he'll be able to fly and it's certainly clear that he would be in big demand should he return to the Navy. In fact, he's told that he'd likely get command of a flight wing, which is a lot more than he thought. But again, we see that side of his wife that it's not just you. And this is the late 60s. So you know, the women's movement is really in its infancy at this point. And in so many ways, we see these NASA wives as people that are in a position to perhaps break down barriers, but if they do it, it could cost their husband his career. Right. And I love that character of his wife because, yes, she's a traditionalist, you might say. and She thinks the whole idea of a female astronaut is preposterous. Right. But at the same time, she's so stoic, and we see as the season goes on, She's in denial of her own emotions where some male characters that we'll talk about in the spoiler zone are in touch with their emotions. And I love that switching of expectations. So the character development is just really, really good in this. Right. And if you have any doubts about Eddie's character when he's being questioned by Congress and they want him to throw Von Braun under the bus and we'll lay the blame at his feet and we'll move on. Instead, he tells Congress the truth that it was his decision to not go to the moon on Apollo 10. It wasn't part of the mission, but as the mission commander, he could have just said, you know what, screw it, we're going to the moon. And he says he could have done it, did consider it, I lost the moon. And of course, all of Congress goes crazy. But Von Braun has it really nailed down in that we can't be guided by fear of the Soviets. And when Sand doesn't get what he wants, he brings up Von Braun's Nazi past. And, and of course, that's, that's it for Werner Von Braun and his association with NASA. And, and then we get that scene where Deke comes in, gives Eddie the plaque that they intended to place on the moon and tells him he's back on Apollo 15. So um, he gets what he wants without having to compromise his values. So really a great scene. Yeah, and of course, the departure of Werner von Braun sets up a great subplot with Margot that we have to maybe have something to look forward to, even maybe past the spoiler zone. But I love that 
Werner Braun Braun is not finished with the show just because he's finished with NASA. Right. And Margot is interviewing for a position in mission control. And Von Braun is, is perfectly behind her. And when she's being interviewed, again, I think this reminds us of what it was really like for women as brilliant as she is. I mean, he subtly insults her when he asks her about her having children and we don't hear her talk about it, but it's clear she's interested in a career in science at its highest level. And you know what he's doing. He's trying to put doubt in her mind so that she will walk away from the interview and he doesn't have to deal with having a woman in mission control, but that's not Margot. And then I love it when Von Braun is kind of teasing her and tells her she's been accepted into mission control. And I know you probably know what that object is that he gives her as a memento. Oh, I sure do. <laughs> um, I actually still have two of mine. And I think I actually, I actually, I want to bet with a colleague of ours many years ago that I knew how to use one. And that, so. of course, is a slide rule for those of you who are paying attention. <laughs> yes. And I've mentioned several times about the astronauts' wives. And we see Gordo's wife, Tracy. And, you know, we talked about these guys. They have their Corvettes. They're hard drinkers. They're hard drivers. And Gordo has a reputation as a womanizer. But we get that scene where she has it thrown in her face. He's off somewhere on a, and I'll make an air quotes, business trip. And I guess technically he is. He's in Cape but, Canaveral or someplace. Yeah, okay. And, <laughs> yeah. and you know, she kind of senses something's off and she she's talking to him and then she hears the toilet flush. Yeah. And of course it's the woman that he has in his room uh, and has had in his room for quite some time. And then, she throws all his stuff onto the front lawn, which prompts the other wives to come over and see what she, they can do to help. But they also understand that you can't do this because it jeopardizes the entire program. Right. And I love how they develop this character because she's a badass, but she also knows when to be stoic and put a happy face on things, not only for the good of the program, but I think just also for the good of her family and for her own good, as well as her husband's good. And, and the evolution of that couple's dynamic is just wonderful to, to watch unfold. Right. And at this point, it's clear she's going to ignore his infidelity, at least for the time being. So. Right. And her character is going to hit some big things in the spoiler zone. So you want to go ahead and hit the button there? <laughs> yeah, let's go ahead and hit the spoiler zone button. You are now entering the spoiler zone. All right. Well, I think a perfect segue is into the segment. They even have a episode titled Nixon's Women, but it also covers gender issues in general. But once Richard Nixon sees that the Soviets have put a woman on the moon, well, he's got to have one of his own because he's got to keep pace. But if we're going to put a woman on the moon, she's got to be blonde. Right. <laughs> I mean, of course. And she's got to be attractive. And in Nixon's mind, the qualifications are secondary. Yeah. It's almost as though they can just throw someone up there. I, I like that Deke insists on training them properly. I'm not sure what they thought they could get away with 
without doing that, but it does cause some delays that has the politically minded folks in the series a little bit worried about, are they going to get this done? Right. Well, you know, one of the other things that comes out in episodes three, four, and five, and I guess we should have reminded people, if you haven't seen those three episodes, stop listening now, (laughs) but the administration's interference in the NASA program, because Deke, as you said, he's running things. And I do like the fact that he's not afraid to exert his power and basically say, if you don't like what I'm doing, I'm going to walk away. I don't think he says it in those words, but we know what that's what it means. But he puts together a class of, I think it's like 20 women that have flying backgrounds, some more recent than others. And there are a number of characters in this group, but they are being trained as astronauts. And the implication is that they're going through the same training that the men do. And dude, I don't know about you, but I'd give up as soon as I saw the classroom aspect with the math (laughs) and the science. I give up. Yeah. And they have some experienced pilots in there. I mean, they do have Tracy Stevens in there, of course, almost as a sub gimmick within the larger gimmick of having a woman on the moon because, oh, isn't it cute that Gordo's wife is doing it too? And they've got, so they've got that dynamic going, but they also have a couple of seasoned pilots from the astronaut program itself in the real life phenomenon of the Mercury 13. And in fact, they have this character, Molly Cobb, modeled after a real historical figure named Jerry Cobb, who did practically this same path that we see here where, you know, they went through astronaut training, but never got to do anything with it. But in this version of history, things are going to be different. Right. And and Molly is so jaded because she doesn't for a second feel like they have any intention of putting a woman into space and that they're just going through the motions. And while she's clearly highly qualified, arguably the most qualified of any of the women in the class, she doesn't think that she really has a chance. And she's not what Nixon envisions for the first U.S. woman in space. Right. She's older. She may be blonde, but she's not, you know, the cover girl kind of uh, look to her. But what a great character. And the evolution as they go on survival training and all the other storylines that Nixon's women go through are just perfect, especially since they get in pretty deep with the Equal Rights Amendment eventually. So to introduce it by way of these women astronauts, I think is a great way to you know, get audience buy-in for this aspect of the divergence of history into a new path, not only for the space program, but for women and minorities and who knows where it's going to go in the future for the show. Right. And you mentioned that Gordo's wife, Tracy, is one of the 20 women. And there are just a couple of great scenes associated with that. Of course, the scene when they first meet, and I'm not sure I put two and two together that that's who she was at that point. But, you know, he's come down from testing a small plane. I don't think it was a jet, just some other kind of plane. And she's like, oh, you know, do you know anybody that could give me flying lessons? <laughs> yeah. and, and, and of course, he she goes up with him and, and she already knows how to fly and she freaks him out with, you know, this daring maneuver. And of course, at that point, they start dating immediately. So we know that she has a flying background, but she gave it up to have a family and to support Gordo 
in his quest to become an astronaut. And then once she is in the program and she's down, I think at this point there's only four of the women left and she's sent out to Cape Canaveral for a launch, you know, to work. And of course, Gordo is freaked out and it's trying to call her. Why didn't you call me? Well, you know, had my phone off or whatever. No, I guess they didn't have cell phones. I forget exactly <laughs> what she says. But it's like that light bulb goes off that she's in her hotel room and he's talking. She puts the phone down, walks in and flushes the toilet. Exactly. Because he accuses her of not being fully committed or something like that. Something that she takes issue with. <laughs> And I love it because she now puts that seed of doubt in his mind that perhaps she's doing what he has done to her. And she has a smile on her face as she just hangs up on him and walks out the door. I think she puts her sunglasses on. It's just uh, it's just a great scene. Well, and he's so supportive of her the whole time. So even though he's made a lot of mistakes, you got to love the fact that this conflict is in, the, in their marriage. But at the same time, there's a real bond. And so you can actually see their relationship from a number of different angles. Right. And just a couple of other points. And, and we, we kind of alluded to this. What comes out in, in the next three episodes is that NASA has basically made a conscious decision to take risks that they would have thought unwise in the past. And again, these are risk takers that you know are in these positions and in many cases, their answer to being asked to take a risk would be, hells, yeah. Exactly. Well, I love that, you know, they're talking about the culture of caution that came from Apollo 1. And then in the mission where both Eddie and Molly are on the first mission that has a woman on it, they take several risks, changing the mission several times, changing the, the landing site changing the amount of time that they're out looking for water and all the different things that they take risks pay off big time. Right. And just the bonding. Oh yeah. Yeah. In that crew, because she is the final vote and ironically, she's the one reluctant to say, yeah, let's go for it at the beginning. So yeah, just, just what a great scene. And then the last thing I want to bring up for the spoiler zone is the mission to find ice, which of course can transform into water as we all know and fuel and fuel and, yeah. right and fuel and what that will allow them to do is then take off from the moon and you know it's just a hop skip and a jump to mars and right, from right. mars you know on out to the uh, solar system but anything else you want to bring up for the spoiler zone no that was the main thing was the water and ice and, and molly's involvement in it that was such a great moment i mean i think the two favorite moments for me were the times when they were getting to the moon, just such excitement, not only with Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and the almost certainty for some reason that they were going to fail in some way, but then they succeeded as well. And then the whole thing with Molly and her sense of wonder, even though she was such a cocky character, she was just so humbled by the experience of, of what happened there in that, in that episode. So gotta love it. I think it's also interesting and I'm transitioning into our what's up next week did you notice that one of the executive producers, in addition to Ronald D. Moore, is Naren Shankar from The Expanse? Did you see his I name? I did notice that, yeah. Even, I think, wrote one of the episodes, maybe even directed one of them. So that was a nice little tie-in to another space show that we love. <laughs> yeah, so, so what do we have up next? Well, we actually do have our Expanse interview, which also is going to be the episode in which we give away our prizes 
for our drawing, the giveaway of the art and making of the expanse from Titan books. And so we thought it would be appropriate to give it away on the episode in which we're interviewing a couple members of the cast. Now, this is an interesting story that the expanse interview was set up this way. Certainly I was originally supposed to go to the set. They're filming season five right now. I couldn't make it just because of things happening back here at home, but they promised me a phone interview and I said, well, I'd like to talk to Wes Chatham, who plays Amos, one of the fan favorites, if the entries in, into our giveaway are any indication. And, you know, things just kept moving around. She's getting shuffled around because that's the nature of trying to get someone to interview while they're filming. And so they kept changing who I was going to interview. And guess who I ended up with? Dominique Tipper and Naren Shankar, the two people who we've actually already had on the podcast. But guess what? I'm not disappointed at all by that fact, because these two are great people to talk to about the show. They know how to tease the details without giving out spoilers. And of course, The Expanse season four is coming on December 13th. So our episode on December 8th will be perfectly timed to whet your appetites for the show to come. Yeah, and we do love that accent, don't we? Oh, yes. Dominique Tipper can uh, get on the podcast anytime. She was our very first interview on the podcast, so we definitely have a soft spot for her. But that's next week on the podcast. That's going to be it for this episode of Sci-Fi Fidelity. Keep the discussion going on social media. You can follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US, and we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. And in the meantime, we'd love it if you could rate and review the podcast wherever you access it. Be sure to send us your suggestions for future topic ideas via social media or in an email to scififidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.